Um, we'll have a little bit shorter time today as Justin Smith, um, the RUF minister at University of North Texas, is coming um, to join us for Sunday school at 10 o'clock to give us an update on how he and his family and the ministry is going there at UNT. Um, so we'll, we'll uh, cease our teaching before that. Um, but it's good to have this time with you all. Let me open us in prayer this morning um, as we get started. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this new day, thankful for your faithfulness um, uh, to uh, continue with us, Lord, um, to be gracious and merciful, um, to give us good things. Even this Lord's Day, um, Father, we thank you um, that you have promised to be near to us, to renew your covenant with your people that you've established in your Son, um, to uh, serve us, Father, by your Spirit, um, to give us good things in word and sacrament. We pray that you would indeed give us a day of um, nourishment from you, of rest for our bodies and our souls, um, that you'd be faithful to us in those ways. Uh, we pray um, that you'd bless even our preparation for worship um, during this Sunday school hour as we study and talk about your word. We, talk, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so before we get into 1 John today again, I wanted to see if there are any Things to talk about from last Sunday, um, um, certainly Sunday school, but also I know that the text last Sunday was an unusual one in our sermon series on Genesis 9, um, where we looked at the story of Noah's drunkenness and nakedness and his son um, Ham coming in and looking on his nakedness and then um, telling his brothers, them responding by walking backwards into the tent, covering their father, um, and then uh, Noah's cursing of Canaan, the son of Ham, and his blessing of Shem and Japheth, and the two sons who acted faithfully in that story. Any things to talk about there? Any questions or comments from last Sunday's sermon, that text in Genesis 9? Anything to discuss? It's totally fine. Okay, wanted to give us an opportunity. I know it's a, a strange and... Um, yeah, unusual uh, portion of God's Word. All right, so we're looking today at First um, John uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, um, continuing hopefully to chapter 3, verse 18, as we continue uh, to make progress in this epistle. Um, really, the theme of this section of First John is um, the holiness uh, that we're called to in Christ Jesus, um, the holiness that comes and is given to those who abide with Christ. Um, uh, you'll see as I read this um, uh, section, um, it begins with a kind of announcement of um, a holiness that is given to us through union with Jesus, a holiness that will be manifested um, completely and utterly, um, ultimately, um, at his coming, that when we see him um, as he is, we shall be like him, um, as the apostle says. And then um, the apostle then moves into, after starting with that kind of declaration of um, our holiness, our sanctification in Christ, uh, particularly the end of that holiness, the goal of our sanctification, which will be completed one day. He then um, moves into a section where he uh, argues that even in this life there should be an integrity, a kind of closeness between um, that end goal and, and our lives today. And he, he really is pointed, I think, we'll see, in his um, exhortations to his readers and to us about the importance of um, considering what it means um, in terms of our sin, in terms of what it means to put off sin and embrace um, holiness together. So I'll read um, beginning in chapter 2 verse 28 through verse 18 of chapter 3 and so we can hear this section all at once and then we'll work through it together in parts. John writes, And now little children abide in him, abide in Christ, that is, Abide in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. 
And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So hopefully you can see a kind of flow of argument here for John in this section of his epistle. He really begins with this um, um, profound statement about of hope, I think, about our holiness, our purity, um, that we will be made like Jesus when we see him. And indeed, as we hope in him now, we're being made pure as he uh, pure is pure himself. And then he moves into this um, argument about um, sin and the, the continuing existence of sin in our lives and what that says about who we are um, and, 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 and insists that those who are in Christ will be putting off sin and those who give in to the way of sin are, are not of Christ or of the devil, essentially. And then in verses 11 to 18, um, John gives this kind of test, I think, to really think about what does it mean in terms of the sin that he's talking about particularly, and he narrows in on this uh, requirement that is um, true for us, which is that we must love one another, and that loving one another is the great test of whether we are walking in the ways of our Lord, um, loving the brothers, loving the sisters, particularly those um, who we're united to in the church, um, in Christ, um, is, the, is, the, is the real test of um, our identity as God's children or children of the devil. Um, so that's, I think, just sort of the general flow of argument um, in this passage. Um, but let's just take it in turn and, and look at it. So again, verses 28 um, through um, 3, chapter 3. And now, little children, notice again that greeting, that, that address that John uses again and again. Little children, it's almost like he wants us to believe that's true about us. Abide in him, abide in Christ. For the children of God, we abide in Christ. So that when he, Jesus, appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I mean, that's a real interesting statement by John. Obviously, that implies that there will be some who do shrink um, in shame um, at the coming of the Lord on the last day. 
Um, and he doesn't want us to be like that. He wants us to have a different response to the coming again of our Lord, that we would be confident and ready and expectant. And remember the, the last words of Revelation, um, probably the book that John wrote last, the last book of the New Testament, um, come soon, Lord Jesus, right? That doesn't sound like someone who is uh, going to be ashamed um, when Jesus appears. It sounds like someone who's longing for that appearing, and that's what he wants us to share with him, um, that kind of expectation. If you know that he is righteous, John says, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So this phrase that John will use, um, practicing sinning versus practicing righteousness, um, shows up here for the first time in this little section. Um, And that's a really important phrase for John. We're going to talk about that distinction. What does it mean to practice sinning? What does it mean to practice righteousness? But obviously, um, one of the signs of our being in Christ, abiding in his him, is that we, because he is righteous, are those who practice righteousness as well. Uh, which, of course, flows out of that abiding. See what kind of love, John says, the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So this is important to say this is something that is given to us now, right? John addresses these believers as little children, as children of God, and we are now the children of God. Um, This is a sign of God's love for us, the love of the Father in particular, and we are God's children. Um, John says, um, at this very moment. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So it's not surprising that the world doesn't recognize this identity. Um, Jesus claimed to be God's son, and he was in many ways murdered because of that claim, because the world did not um, honor that claim that he made, and that he was um, God's son. And in similar way, our identity as the children of God is not yet apparent to all. Beloved, we are God's children now, John goes on to say, but there's something yet to come. What we will be has not yet appeared, right? What we will be, we're God's children now, but we will become something more in a sense, and it's not yet evident and has not yet taken place um, in our, in our lives um, now. But we know that when he appears, meaning the Lord Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Um, The argument there from John seems to be essentially um, when we see the Lord Jesus um, in his coming, when we um, are joined with him, when we're raised from the dead, our bodies, and reunited with our souls, um, in that moment we'll be perfected and made like unto him. And that's a profound thing to think about, not only in the sense that we will receive everlasting life, um, even as Jesus already possesses everlasting life at his Father's right hand, but that we will be without sin, we'll be without even the desire to sin, um, which is a, such a fundamentally different way of living than we can really imagine um, today, right? We not only fall short of God's um, commands frequently, um, but we we have desires that want, that want to fall short, that want to transgress the law of God. And so the Christian life now is this life um, of battling against the flesh, the spirit and the flesh, uh, warring against each other in some sense. And we all know that experience Paul talks about in Romans 7. Um, and, but, but the promise for us is that we will be like Jesus um, in that we will no longer um, be capable of sin, so to speak. Um, it will not be possible for us um, to transgress the law of God. And I, I just think about that, what kind of um, contentment will be possible for us that we don't really have any full awareness of right now, what kind of community with one another in the resurrection um, where sin is absent from our experience, even the desire to sin. And everyone who thus hopes in him, um, John says, purifies himself as Jesus, our Lord, is pure. So as we hope in Christ and in his coming and in his uh, making us pure and holy, uh, we actually are, are, there's a sense in which that's linked to our current purification as we move along that trajectory. Um, the, the classic distinction of Reformed theology is definitive sanctification, which means 
um, through our union with Christ and the work of the Spirit, we are saints, we are holy ones, um, we are righteous before God, and yet we also believe as um, just Bible-believing Christians that there is also a kind of progressive sanctification that is, takes place in our life where we actually, in real time, become more holy um, um, over, over the span of weeks and days and months and years. Uh, we move more towards that holiness that is our goal. Any thoughts or questions about that before I read a quote from Calvin or anything else? Yeah, Jeremy. Absolutely. Yeah, John very much has a kind of bifurcated vision of reality in the sense that you are either a child of God or a child of Satan. Um, you're either in Christ or you're in the world. And there is a, yeah, there, there is a strong antithesis between um, those things for John. And it's worth our reflecting on, um, thinking through that. What does that mean um, to not be of the world, as he says uh, earlier in chapter 2? Anything else? Yeah, James? Absolutely. I love that. Yeah, that's right. And how do we see Jesus in this life? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I, that's exactly right. We, we are given encounters with Jesus um, in, this, in this world, in this life. And, and I think you're right, James, to notice that, that it's that encounter with the risen Christ um, that is meant to make us pure on the last day fully and completely. It doesn't just happen generically. It happens through personal interaction, engagement with the risen Lord, and um, I think that is a great picture of the Christian life, that we, as we see Jesus, we don't fully yet see him as he is, as we will one day, but we do see him. We see him in his word, um, read and preached and studied. We see him in the sacraments. Um, we receive him there. We receive him in prayer, of course, and then, yeah, I think fellowship with one another. Um, those are some of the real places where Jesus shows up in our lives and, and transforms us and makes us more holy. Yeah, Rachel and Kim. Yeah, Rachel's saying basically John has one foot in the eschaton and one foot in the now, and he really does emphasize the nearness of those two things, um, that he, you have to hold on to them. They're, they're closely linked to one another. I think that's right. Um, I think that is kind of a distinctive thing in some way about John's theology in the New Testament is that close relationship between, um, between the end and the moment, present moment. And, of course, in many ways, that's what the whole book of Revelation is about, right, is the unveiling, the apocalypse of what is to come and the way that that ought to transform us in the moment uh, now. That's right. Yeah, Kim. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, that's a good question. So Kim's asking about, we talked last week about, um, uh, where John talks about the, the we're in the last hour, essentially, um, um, that that may be referring to um, the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment that would come, um, that came in 70 AD. And is there a link between what's happening here? And I, what I would say is, yes, I think there is. I think that, um, I think 70 was a huge deal in um, the life of the people of God, and it was a kind of coming of the Lord. Um, and certainly one of the meanings of this passage is um, Jesus is coming. He's almost here. Be ready for that. The judgment is near. Um, uh, but I do think, as often is the case with much prophecy in general in the scriptures, and certainly a lot of the New Testament prophecies, there are layered meanings, basically, right? <clears throat> so something can have a kind of uh, a, a sort of subsidiary, you know, initial fulfillment, um, which I think does take place in 70. Um, but we can also say there's a coming that happens, you know, every Lord's Day, um, every, you know, in about, you know, an hour from now or whatever, Jesus has promised to show up um, with us and with his people. It won't be on the clouds, I don't think. Um, it will be in normal kind of you know, regular mundane things, but every Lord's Day is a kind of coming of the Lord where we, we don't want to shrink from shame um, at his coming. And all of those things point forward, I think, to the full eschaton, the, the, the final fulfillment of, of his coming on the last day. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's upheaval, and that's what Jesus talks about in sermon on the Mount of Olives, Olivet Discourse. He prophesies that there will be, it'll be a time of great upheaval, there'll be earthquakes, there'll be wars, there'll be persecution. And we see all of those things happening in the latter years of the 60s and that decade that goes before. There's an acceleration, there's a consolidation of power that happens with the leaders of Israel. You know, they initially shake off um, the Roman um, uh, oppression from their perspective. Um, the persecution of Christians intensifies because they have more freedom to do it. Um, and then everything changes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Sam. Yeah, great question. Yeah, yeah, excellent question. So Sam is connecting with the passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that he just read from, um, at the twinkle of an eye, all shall be, all shall be changed. Um, the incorruptible must be put on, must put on the, or the corrupt, yeah, the corruptible must put on the incorruptible, the mortal must put on immortality. Um, so what we believe, um, what our confession teaches, what I believe the scripture teaches is that time of death, the souls of believers are made perfect in holiness and go immediately into the presence of the Lord. Um, so my soul is separated from my body and my soul um, ascends to heaven um, and is made perfectly holy um, by God um, and, and, and resides in heaven um, in whatever that means. It's hard to, you know, really flesh out, flesh out um, what it means for a soul to reside in God's presence, right? Um, without a body. Um, it is important to say that that is an unnatural state of existence, that in Genesis 2, God makes us as a soul-body nexus, united, joined, uh, meant to be forever joined, right? Death is the unnatural tearing of the soul from the body. And so that state, though it is blessed, is not perfected. 
in a full sense because my body um, is not yet raised from the dead. Um, and so in that separation, there still is work to be done. And so that's why the Lord Jesus comes on the last day and his voice calls, as he says in John 5, um, the dead from their graves. Um, and at that point, I think 1 Corinthians 15 will be fulfilled, but not before. That's the moment when uh, the corruptible will put on the incorruptible, the mortal um, will put on immortality. Um, when, um, when my body and soul are joined, when I am uh, perfected completely, uh, body and soul, as a whole, as a whole person. Um, there's a sense in which my disembodied soul in heaven is a kind of, I'm sort of a half person in that point, you know, because I, I was made to have a body forever um, and for those things to be joined. So that would be my answer that I certainly don't think when we die, I know this is, I mean, it's a heresy in my view, but there are some who teach this, that, you know, that the resurrection happens for the believer at the point of death. Um, um, and somehow you get some kind of spiritual body and it's different from your physical body or something. I don't believe that. Um, I believe that when we die, our souls are perfected in holiness and go to be with the Lord. Our bodies um, remain united to our Lord Jesus Christ. They are vessels and temples of the Holy Spirit. And even in the grave, they lie as in their beds until the day of resurrection um, in that state. Yeah. Absolutely, physical return of the future. And the reason he's coming here is because he doesn't intend to leave. Do you know what I mean? Um, he has to come in the flesh because what he's going to do as he comes is he's going to remake all things. The picture that John has um, is of heaven and earth meeting and combining. Does that make sense? Um, so that the earth will be restored and renewed, the dead will be raised, all things will be perfected, and Jesus will live with us forever on this earth not this earth as it is now, but this earth resurrected in a sense, transformed um, according to, to his desire. And that's why Re Revelation talks about um, the dwelling place of God is well with his people, right? In a way that was always the intention of the Old Testament, right? You think about um, the temple and the tabernacle and all those things, God coming to dwell in the midst of his people, right? The tribes being very specifically arrayed around the tabernacle so that God would be in their midst. But that was a spiritual coming in the sense that it wasn't full. It was, it was um, the spirit of God inhabiting the temple. But what happens on the last day is Jesus returns in the flesh and he never leaves again. Um, there's no more goodbyes at that point. Um, he's with us forever. And we will always be with the Lord as um, Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4. And that picture in Thessalonians 4, that we will go to the clouds and, and meet him there, the picture is of a, it's like a, 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 a conquering king coming to the city, um, uh, back to his city that, you know, where he's from or whatever. He's coming, we're going out to meet him so that we can all come together and live here forever. Um, and that's, that's the picture, I think, that is given to us. Uh, we will always be with the Lord, um, as Paul says. Any other thoughts or questions about any of that? Let me um, read this quote from Calvin, um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Calvin says, and I would continue to recommend his commentary in 1 John, I think it's wonderful. He says, our present state is far short of the glory of God's children. So Calvin really wants to emphasize, he does this a lot, the, the way in which our lives now are nothing like what we're promised. Um, we have not yet received those things, all of the things that were promised at least. He says, physically we are dust and shadow and death is always before our eyes. We are exposed to a thousand miseries and our souls to innumerable evils so that we always find a hell within us. The more necessary it is that our senses should be withdrawn from the view of present things, lest the miseries by which we are on every side surrounded and almost overwhelmed should shake our trust in that happiness 
which as yet is hidden. For our faith can only stand if it looks to the coming of Christ. This, I say, is the only way to sustain our faith, so that we may patiently wait for the promised life. As soon as anyone turns away in the slightest degree from Christ, he cannot help failing. Just to wrap up with that, I think Calvin really does a great job. And you, you, if you read the Institutes, if you read his commentaries, he will speak in this way frequently. Um, Calvin was a man who was deeply dissatisfied with life in this world. Um, and part of that's his own experience. Um, he suffered, apparently, from a number of constant physical um, problems, um, pain and, and um, sickness and just weakness. Um, he lived, of course, in a time of upheaval. Um, he experienced death of loved ones around him. Um, he saw a great deal of suffering. You know, Geneva was basically a city where refugees came um, who had been um, persecuted, whose homes had been destroyed and lives had been destroyed. And so he saw these things. He ministered to orphans and widows um, regularly. Um, and yet the same is true for us, I think. Um, if we're honest, I mean, we... we we, you know, have so much um, in this culture, in this moment, in history, and yet, man, there's so much suffering. Um, even in our congregation, there's so much suffering. Um, and and we, I think what Calvin says here is appropriate for us to cling to, that this really is true. Um, we are dust and shadow, and death is always before our eyes. We're exposed to a thousand miseries, and our souls to innumerable evils. Um, this is true, in my experience at least, and in my observation of your experience. Um, and I think Calvin is right, that, and John is right, that, that the way forward is to cling to that hope, to say, we are not yet satisfied um, and content with what we've received. We want more. Um, and by faith, to trust that that will come. And that, that hope um, that does not disappoint, as Paul says in Romans 5, um, is the thing that will give us um, contentment in this life and joy in this life. It, it won't come from our circumstances. It won't come from, you know, us, you know, kind of life hacking our days and weeks or whatever. Um, it will come through that certain hope that we can hopefully cling to and trust in and hold on to. And again, that's, that's why the Lord Jesus comes to us every Lord's Day to remind us, right? To say, this is, this is the true thing, right? Out there, there's going to be a lot of things you see and feel, but they're passing away. This is the true thing, and we will always be with the Lord. He will always be with us, and that's a sweet and certain promise. Let me pray for us, and then Justin's going to come and address us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for First John. Thank you for the way that the apostle um, helps us to wrestle with um, all of these truths, and we pray that you would grant us um, wisdom and grace um, as we contemplate these things. Give us the kind of hope that John describes, the kind of hope that Calvin talks about, um, that is rooted in um, the, the unveiling, the coming of your Son, and the life that he will bring, that he will uh, be with us forever, and that he will never leave us again. Um, Lord, help us to hold on to that promise and to be, um, to be encouraged by it. Um, as Paul says um, in 1 Thessalonians, let us encourage one another with these words um, that are true. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Justin Smith is here with us. I'm delighted to have him. Um, Justin is the RUF minister at the University of North Texas in Denton, just up the road. And um, we've had a partnership with Justin for some years now and are delighted to have you come. I know you come about once a year usually and yeah. preach for us and give us greetings. So, um, so welcome, Justin. Justin's going to give us an update on how life and ministry is in Denton. And maybe if you could just start by giving us a 90-second you know, description of what RUF is if someone has no idea. Yeah, for sure. That'd be great. Um, again, my name is Justin Smith. I've been here a few times. I've met several of you before. Um, and it's just a blessing to be here again. And uh, yeah, one of my favorite, one of the fun parts about my job is I don't have regular uh, Sunday responsibilities to preach, so I get to go preach at other churches and see God at work in other congregations, and that's definitely a delight. 
Um, RUF is Reformed University Fellowship. It is the uh, PCA's campus ministry. Uh, we call it an arm of the church, in a sense, extended to the campus. And the PCA has deemed it uh, necessary to send ordained campus ministers to the campus to be the church's presence on campus. I like to think of it as like um, extended hospitality. You know, your church has a big uh, um, potluck meal, and you have all of your tables set out there. And what RUF is, is you're, you're taking that table and you're just extending it further uh, to the campus and you're putting a, camp, a minister there to sit and to welcome and to talk and to discuss the gospel with students. And so that's what I get to do. Um, yeah, so that's, that's our focus. And, and we do simple things like you would in a church. We do uh, small groups throughout the week where we gather students for Bible study and discussion we do a large group um, once a week where we have worship and uh, teach, and we have some discussion groups there. And then I do one-on-one -on -one counseling with students often. Um, and it's a, a joy and a privilege to be able to walk with these students and to kind of see the lights turn on um, for many of them. Um, so but just a little bit about me, just so you know a little bit more about me and where we're at. My, uh, my wife is... Uh, two weeks away from having our third baby, uh, and we have two other children. I have a five-year-old named Vivian um, and a two-year-old named Nathaniel, and then, yeah, in two weeks, Lord willing, we'll have a third, which we're extremely excited about, another girl. And we've been on campus at UNT for six years now, <clears throat> and um, I was thinking about it the other day because we had our, our, a senior kind of testimony, send-off thing. And our seniors kind of graduate every semester. It's not, it's not just the once a year. And so it feels like I've had 12 senior testimony nights. And that feel, that's kind of hard for me. I don't like watching seniors graduate. But it's a part of, you know, watching them, them grow up and hearing how RUF has shaped them and seeing them go off. And I'll, 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 I'll give you a little bit of a testimony from one of the students in this thing. But just to kind of give you an idea of how I look, about, look at RUF um, as a ministry on campus, because what, you know, what, it is, what is it and why do we do RUF on campus? I was listening to this podcast recently, and there was this guy named Andy Crouch who was having this conversation, and he was rethinking the way that we think about the word impact. And when it comes especially to our work and especially to our ministry, uh, he says that impact carries this idea of a large force over a short amount of time. And many businesses and nonprofits try to measure our success by this, our impact. And even I hear students all the time choosing career paths based on this. How can I make the most impact? saying they really want to make an impact on the world. And although the notion for this idea behind impact is good, we want to shape the world in a positive way, the question is, how does this actually happen? Because though impacts, as we think of them, might make quick changes, they often return to the status quo, uh, sort of like a revival. However, the ordinary, harder, and yet more consistently biblical work is slower, <laughs> less flashy, and often unseen. Jesus compares the work of the kingdom most often to a seed or to a gardener. And so I like the way the one pastor puts it. He says, most of us are wore out with hard work and a frenetic pace trying to do large things famously as fast as possible. The problem is that most things that truly matter in life require us to cultivate small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. <laughs> or Paul puts it this way. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so RUF and campus ministry, even church ministry, is not about quick impacts most of the time. 
though that's sexier. It's about weeding and watering and cultivating the life of God and students. And so it's about being present <laughs> with students on campus and meeting them in their highs and in their lows. And that's what we're called to do. And that's what we've been there to do for the last six years. It's reaching them for Jesus and equipping them to serve in the life ahead and their churches and in their vocations. And that's where we really want to see, you know, what is the influence that we've made in these students' lives. Uh, it's not building a massive movement on campus or group on campus, but it's, it's are they faithfully walking with Jesus five, ten years down the road? That's what we hope to see in our students. But why do we do this now? Why are we still... Uh, see the campus as vital. Well, Christianity Today had an article that said, uh, had said this recently. So the decline of Christianity shows no sign of stopping in the U.S. That by 2070, the Christians will be in the minority. They project in the next 50 years, the Christians will be in the minority. And they said in the article, it said, currently 64% of people say they are Christian but nearly a third of those raised Christian eventually switch to none or nothing in particular, while only about 20% of those raised without religion will become Christian. And so that's how the, the numbers work out, that it will eventually, uh, they project in 50 years, we will be in the minority. But most of this that happens, most who leave the church, the seeds that are sown, um, or reaped often happen in college. The seeds of distrust or doubt or disappointment. College students are often either coming into the faith or walking away from the faith. And I, I, somebody said this to me one time, that college students are like wet cement. Uh, they are right on the verge of being formed in certain ways for the rest of their lives. And we uh, have the opportunity to go to the campus and meet them in that time. Uh, so it's a vital time to be on campus. And our goal is to be present where they are. And so very simply, one of the things we like to say with RUF is to make good friends, is to, to help them find a community of people that they can uh, have joys and sorrows with, to ask good questions. We want it to be a place where they can come with the questions they may have wrestled with. Uh, it's incredible to see students who, who just feel like, oh, I've never been able to ask that question before, but now I can ask it in this group. And then lastly, to hear good news. Uh, we are about the gospel of Jesus. So let me read just a, a short testimony from one of the, my senior testimonies. This is a girl. She says this one, coming into college, the first couple of weeks were pretty rough for me. I was homesick, lonely, and felt unworthy. I think my sweet mate sensed the emptiness I was feeling because one day she asked if I wanted to go to this church group that her friend had told her about. I was so excited at the thought of finding somewhere that I would fit in, so I said, sure, I would love to go. And from the first large group I went to, I knew that RUF was an incredibly special and God had led me here for a reason. The first time I went to a senior night at RUF, I thought about what I would say when it came time to give my testimony. I thought about where or who I would be in, RU in four years. Where would I be living? Who would I be friends with? Would I ever manage to get a boyfriend? <laughs> Miraculously, I did. But the one thing that I never questioned was that I would be here in RUF. One thing that I've learned through my time here is that God will always meet you where you are. I often found myself comparing my relationship to him with others and feeling discouraged, feeling like I wasn't as strong. But God will meet you wherever you are, and allow you to grow with him. That is what I have done throughout my time here and has made me excited to continue to live as a Christian, find community through the church, and have God guide my relationships and future endeavors. I love just the simplicity of that testimony. It wasn't flashy. It was just a roommate's invitation. Uh, and the consistency in her life, which moved her to know and trust God more from when she was a freshman to when she was a senior. And that's what we're aiming for, is to help students grow in their knowledge and love of God. And so, um, you know, one of the big things that I, I do is raise support. And I know 
um, for Colleyville. Y'all, y'all have been a very generous uh, congregation as a church for us. Big, have been partners for a very long time. And so I'm, first of all, just grateful for your partnership, um, for the financial gifts and the prayers and the invitation to come preach and to be a part of y'all's community in this way. And it's, this gift is a significant reason why we're able to continue uh, on this, doing this ministry on U, UNT's campus. Uh, but I do want to just bring to your attention uh, that in the past few years, especially this last one, we have taken some significant um, dips in our giving for a variety of reasons. A few different financial supporters were neighbor, no longer able to give uh, recently. And so we're uh, kind of well be- behind the curve of what we need to continue in a healthy state. Uh, in, in many ways, we're trying to, I'm, I'm hoping to raise an additional $30,000 um, in, in either kind of one-time gifts or um, monthly partners. And really what I'm hoping for and looking for are monthly givers, people who can give monthly to sustain us and bring our ministry into more of a sustainable way. And, and that doesn't mean big impact givers like I was talking about, not necessarily $1,000 a month or $200 a month but small seed givers, people who can give $100 a month or $50 a month or even $25 a month, uh, people who can all come alongside us and, and, and partner with us to see us continue to reach a very lost campus that really needs um, a community there to welcome and to receive students. So. Um, I will also say <laughs> I would not turn away an impact donation as we're about to have uh, a baby in two weeks. Um, so this is part of my goal is getting around and talking to people. Uh, but if you have a heart for college students for a very lost campus just up the road, uh, for seeing students reached for Jesus and hopefully uh, shaped and equipped in a way that they would have a, a lifetime of walking with him and serving the PCA, um, we would, I would love to partner with you, to talk with you, uh, sit down and have coffee with you maybe in you know, July. Um, but I would love to have those conversations. Um, there's a sign-up sheet out there on one of the tables. And there's also uh, a few pamphlets, um, stickers and things like that, pens. Um, so. consider um, the invitation to give monthly, um, even a small amount, and it will be encouraging um, for the work at UNT and for Justin and Catherine and their family mm-hmm. um, specifically. Are there any questions yeah. um, that you guys might have? We have about a few minutes before we wrap up things here. Anything you probably want to know anything about RUF or what's going on at UNT or anything at all? Yeah. How long have you been at UNT? So six years now. Uh, well, COVID, yeah, it's it's basically two different campuses, it feels like. I, I, I started on a different campus than the one I work on now, in a sense that COVID has altered completely the way the campus feels and the culture of the campus and the type of student that comes. Um, it is, UNT, well, in some ways it, it exasperated some of UNT's uh, realities, which UNT... Um, can be kind of the black sheep uh, school of the UT systems. Often the students who don't want to go to one of the bigger schools, they end up at UNT because it's more, um, uh, it's just more artistic. There's a lot more music, journalism, fashion, those type of things are a big part of it. And so some of the kind of individualistic aspects have been exasperated. And so the culture is very different. One of the other aspects of it that, that is a really interesting challenge that I, I like about the campus, but it does make it hard, is that it's almost, it's like 45% first generation students. 
So these are mostly students coming from a lower income background, um, a lot of first generation Hispanic students. Um, so a lot of them are working their way through school and, and that has only increased dramatically since I've been there. And so, and it's a, a school that's growing. It's one of the few universities that's kind of dramatically growing. Um, so there are a lot of different ways in which the culture is, is different um, since, especially since COVID, but. What's the enrollment for It's over 42,000 now. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's bigger than like University of Alabama, if you think of like, it's pretty wild. Um, that's all we have time for, but Justin will be here um, before worship, after worship, uh, during worship, he'll be preaching. So um, be great and glad that Justin's here. Um, give him your questions, talk to him, sign up for um, an email um, from RUSTC. Let's pray um, for Justin, Catherine, and their parents. Father, we're grateful for Justin, and I'm thankful for his presence in our presbytery, his friendship, and um, the ways that you have um, just given him a faithful steady ministry at UNT, Lord. I'm, I'm grateful for um, the fruit um, that he sees in the lives of students. I'm thankful for um, uh, the impact that he's making there on um, individual lives um, as, as young men and young women are um, learning what it means to follow Jesus and become uh, committed and serious um, Christians. I'm grateful for that. I pray that you would continue to um, uh, make the ministry at UNT fruitful. We pray for provision um, for um, the needs of the ministry, for the needs of the Smith family. And we ask that you would give them um, generous supporters, um, maybe even from our church and other churches in the Presbytery um, that might encourage and further um, and, and stabilize their ministry there. And we pray for, the, um, for Catherine, particularly as she approaches the end of her pregnancy, that you would um, keep her and the babe that she carries safe and healthy. We look forward in um, two weeks, Father, to good news about a new little girl um, as a part of the Smith family. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Amen.